Salam alaikum. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Today, I'd like to introduce you to another show that you may be interested in. The Mummy Movie Podcast is dedicated to the various films that have appeared throughout the 20th century dealing with ancient Egyptian mummies. The Mummy is a classic archetype of cinematic horror. Films ranging from suspense to comedy and action-adventure have dealt with mummified humans from ancient Egypt and their undead quests for vengeance. As you can imagine, I myself have an abiding love of mummy movies. I used to devour them when I was a child, taking every video I could from the local VHS store. Now, Egyptologist Peter Rose has dedicated an entire podcast to exploring these films. Every week, he dives into a new entry, whether it's the classic 1932 film The Mummy, the 1999 remake, or the lesser-known films from the mid-20th century, including such luminaries as Christopher Lee in the title role. In this episode, Peter is going to introduce a mummy film from the 1950s. I'm sure you'll agree, it's a fascinating subject, and one that is a great deal of fun to explore. So, allow me to introduce The Mummy Movie Podcast with Peter Rose. Hello, and welcome to The Mummy Movie Podcast where in this episode we will be looking at the first half of The Mummy from 1959 with Christopher Lee. This episode will focus on the first 45 minutes of the film, with next week's episode focusing on the remainder of the film. Firstly, I will give a little background information on the film. Then I shall assess the historical accuracy of the first 45 minutes. And finally, I shall review the first 45 minutes. So... Let us once again creep into the tomb. Let us open the creaky coffin lid and stare into the face of the mummy. Although this was intended to be a remake of The Mummy from 1932, most of the characters in this film come from the Mummy movies from the 1940s. However, they are portrayed by different actors. Stephen Banning from The Mummy's Hand and Tomb is now played by Felix Aylmere. His son and the main character, John Banning from The Mummy's Tomb, is now played by Peter Cushing. Isabel, also from The Mummy's Tomb, is now played by Yvonne Fernau. And finally, Carice, the mummy, who appears in The Mummy's Hand, Tomb, Ghost and Curse is now played by Christopher Lee. It is also the first mummy movie to be released in colour, although it was not the first film to be set in Egypt to be released in colour, as The Ten Commandments was released three years before this. Indeed, The Mummy clearly took much of the colour palette from The Ten Commandments when it comes to the scenes set in ancient Egypt, as admittedly do most of the mummy movies that follow it right up until the present day. The budget was £125,000, which equates to about £2.6 today. This is an incredibly small budget. Especially considering that Christopher Lee had already appeared in over 50 films by this point and had played iconic roles such as Frankenstein's Monster and Dracula. Meanwhile, Peter Cushing had been in over 20 films, although he had also only played his first lead role two years prior also in The Curse of Frankenstein, when he played Victor Frankenstein. In fact, this is the only Hammer Horror-produced film 
in which Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing and Michael Ripper, who was also known for many horror films, all appeared in the same film. I feel that this gives some indication of how much less money popular film stars were paid in these early horror films when compared to the present day. Now we shall move on to the section on the historical accuracy of the film. The film starts in 1895, where Stephen Banning, his brother Joseph, and his son, John Banning, are searching for the tomb of Ananka. Firstly, we see the entrance of the tomb is slowly being cleared of sand, and that a few workers are sieving through that sand. This, at least, is an activity that is frequently done on excavations in Egypt. Normally, as sand is cleared away, it is placed in a pile and it is quite common for workers to sieve through this to find smaller artefacts, such as beads or fragments which may have been missed. I am a little confused, however, by one of the workers, who is standing away from the others and just appears to be hitting a smallish rock with a sledgehammer. He does this throughout the scene and is clearly making no progress on his strange job. I do wonder if the actor was just given a sledgehammer and told to look busy for the scene. Standing away from the excavation, there is also a man using an item known as a dumpy. This essentially is a device which is used to measure the level of the excavation above sea level. Normally, for this to be effective, you also need someone to be holding a measuring stick for the dumpy to focus on, and yet the man behind the dumpy seems to just vaguely be pointing it at the excavation. I'm really not sure what he's hoping to achieve by doing this. When they find the entrance to the tomb of Ananka, rope is tied around the door, keeping it fastened shut. This has clearly been done to replicate the entrance of Tutankhamun's tomb, as the door was found likewise. Further next to the door, we see an image of Osiris. As Osiris was the god of the underworld, his presence here does make sense. On the actual door, there are two depictions of Nekbet, a goddess that is frequently depicted as a vulture. Nekbet was the patron deity of southern Egypt, and so, arguably, this could give some indication of where the tomb is located. However, realistically, I feel I have put more thought into this than the actual writers of the film, and likely they have just used a random goddess. In fact, to be honest with you, they probably didn't even realise it was a goddess. Inside the tomb, although the camera never shows the deity depicted in their entirety, the figure shown by the Scroll of Life, the scroll which in the film brings the mummy back from the dead, looks to be Thoth. This would be accurate as he was the god of writing, and in Egyptian mythology he was also the god who invented hieroglyphs. Later still, when they are leaving the excavation, John Banning states that he has set up the charges along the tunnel to bring the roof down and reseal the tomb. One of the workers then detonates the dynamite. I'm not so sure that this would reseal the tomb as destroy it. This part is quite perplexing as firstly, even in 1895, I do not believe that genuine archaeologists, as these people are made out to be, would have used dynamite. Secondly, very few tombs in Egypt are found unlooted, and one such as this would take years of studying. This would now be completely impossible. Maybe, just maybe, something like a simple gate would have sufficed instead. 
Moving away from the excavation, one interesting point here, and it is a point that has also been brought up in the episode on The Mummy 1932, is that the villain in the film prays to the great god Karnak. Karnak was actually a temple complex, not a god, so it's a bit of a strange thing to be praying to. However, this can be used to show that these films, more often than not, mostly just borrowed from the films before them. In The Mummy 1932, for instance, the mummy is the high priest of the Temple of the Sun at Karnak. In The Mummy's Hand and Tomb, the mummy is the high priest of Karnak. And in this one, Ananka is the high priestess of the great god Karnak. And so, you can gradually see the films burrowing from one another, slightly changing the wording over time. On a more accurate note, during a couple of instances in the film, the villains refer to Egypt as Kemet. This is in fact what the ancient Egyptians called Egypt. Kemet means the black lands, and it likely refers to the colour of the soil, which was incredibly fertile due to the inundation, so the flooding of the Nile, essentially. The final and most interesting part of this first 45 minutes of the film is the flashback scene that shows the embalming of Ananka and her burial. Firstly, most of the priests in the film are depicted as bald. This is correct, as many priests shaved off the hair from their bodies and heads as a way to remain pure. However, I do find it funny that Ananka has long hair in a typical 1950s style. Unsurprisingly, this isn't right. During the scene showing Ananka's embalming, the film gets some parts right and some parts incorrect. Firstly, several of the embalmers here are women. Only men were actually allowed to be embalmers in ancient Egypt, and normally the role was handed down from father to son. Secondly, they say that the first step is to anoint the body with oils. This was actually typically one of the last steps in embalming, as the oils helped to keep the limbs malleable after they had been dried out. Essentially, they stopped the limb from snapping. It next says that the body was prepared with sweet spices and natron, for everlasting preservation and that the body was submerged in natron for 70 days. This is mostly correct. The body was actually submerged in natron for 40 days, as this was what dried out the body and allowed it to be preserved. However, the entire mummification process typically took 70 days when it came to the most expensive forms of embalming. After the body had been dried in natron, it would have a sunken look and so the body was stuffed to give it a more lifelike appearance. Among other things, the body would have been stuffed with sweet-smelling spices such as cinnamon. Further, even the bandages that surrounded the body would often be scented, as this as well would stop the body from smelling. It is worth remembering, of course, that this film was made in the 1950s, and so it could just be that we know more about mummification now. Therefore, although not perfect, I do feel that some research has been done for this scene. Next, we move on to the funeral procession. Again, parts of this are correct and parts of it are not. Firstly, they have oxen pulling the sled containing the shrine and coffin. This is correct. They then show a wooden boat model and say that it is a Sekhmet boat to take the deceased to the afterlife. Sekhmet was actually a cat-headed warrior goddess, and so this is not the name of these boats. However, similar boats have been found in tombs, although on the one in the film, the deceased is shown as dead and in her coffin, 
when in reality they would have been shown as alive. Next, they show a man in an Anubis mask and say that he is a recorder of souls. I feel the title Recorder of Souls would more likely be attributed to Thoth, because as stated earlier, he was the god of writing. During the weighing of the heart ceremony, where it was decided if the deceased was worthy of the afterlife, Thoth recorded the events of the ceremony, which arguably would make him the Recorder of Souls. They then show Anubis in dog form and say he is a guardian of the tomb. This is actually correct. During the early dynastic period, that's roughly 3150 to 2680 BCE, give or take, dogs were commonly associated negatively with cemeteries. Basically, because of the shallowness of the graves at this time, they would dig up the bodies of the dead and eat their flesh. Yum, yum, yum. Anubis, the god commonly depicted as a dog, was used to fight like with like. Whilst other dogs caused damage to bodies, he protected them. It is possible that Anubis, as a protector of tombs, has its origins here. Finally in the procession, they show women carrying shabtis, which the voiceover says are symbols of great power and significance. Shabtis were servant figures that were normally stored in a box at the base of the coffin. In the afterlife, they were believed to come to life to serve the deceased. Although physically they were not as big as the ones shown in the film, Shabtis are at least real things. During the scene, Carice wears a leopard skin. This would make him a Sem priest and the actions he does during the funeral are correct for this role. For instance, during the scene he performs a part of the opening of the mouth ceremony which was designed to allow the deceased to see, speak, breathe and so on in the afterlife. Basically, it was designed to give the deceased back their senses. To do this, the Sem priests touched different parts of the body, such as the mouth and eyes, with various magical instruments, whilst reciting spells to bring the senses back to that part of the body. Therefore, Carice wearing the leopard skin here is actually correct. However, following Carice in the procession is a casket containing the heart of a Nanka. In ancient Egypt, the heart was actually left in the body after death, as, amongst other things, the deceased needed them for the weighing of the heart ceremony in order to enter the Field of Reeds. In a modern context, the Field of Reeds can kind of be likened to heaven. Although there is much more I would like to talk about here, I shall end on one final point. It says here that hundreds of people were killed to accompany Ananka into the afterlife to serve her. Past the First Dynasty, human sacrifice was not practiced in ancient Egypt. This film is claimed to take place in the 19th dynasty and so this is completely incorrect. Basically, when it comes to historical accuracy, this film largely just borrows from the films before it and changes parts, very often accidentally. This means that much of what is represented here is incorrect. However, there is some evidence, especially for the flashback scene, that a small amount of research was done. Now I shall review the first half of this film and say whether I am enjoying it or not up until this point. Firstly, there are quite a few callbacks to earlier Mummy movies. For some, this would be considered simply as copying, but I thought they were done quite well much of the time. Once again, 
much like in The Mummy 1932, the first person to see the mummy alive, in this case Stephen Banning, gets driven insane by the sight of him. In The Mummy 1932, the person ends up laughing themselves manically to death, where in this one, he does not die until much later in the film, but remains insane. Although it is noticeable that he is not as mad as he appears, as his statements about the mummy being alive are correct. I felt that this worked quite well and did lead to me feeling a little sympathy towards Stephen Banning. At one point in the film, we find out that the villain, Mehmet Bey, has arrived in Egypt and has paid two men to carry a box which secretly contains Caris the mummy to his house. Those two people end up getting incredibly drunk with some of the most over-the-top acting I've ever seen, and as a result, the box containing Caris ends up falling off the wagon and into a swamp. Although the over-the-top acting here left a lot to be desired, I do like the box falling into the swamp, as this is reminiscent of the ending of The Mummy's Ghost, when Caris sinks into the swamp, holding onto an anchor. Personally, I feel that this was designed to remind any viewer that has seen The Mummy's Ghost that The Mummy actually won in that one. This could make the ending of this film less certain as it hints at a potentially unhappy ending. I also appreciate that much like in the 1940s films, The Mummy kills by strangling. However, unlike the older films, The Mummy moves at a much quicker pace but still maintains many of the mannerisms of Carrie's from the 1940s films. By The Mummy's Curse, the last Mummy movie made in the 1940s, The Mummy was painfully unscary, and this was partly because it was obvious that you could just jog past him and be fine. The Mummy being faster here increases his potential threat. For the most part, The Mummy is a silent role, which for me does take away one of Christopher Lee's main strengths, as his deep voice is both attention-grabbing and charismatic. However, the emotion shown in his eyes in this film is phenomenal and you always seem to know what the mummy is thinking. This film really emphasised what a great actor he was. Further, his character does get to speak during the flashback scene in Ancient Egypt and it is one of the things that makes this scene so good and so memorable. Ultimately, at the halfway mark, I am very much enjoying this film. I felt that the frequent callbacks to the previous Mummy movies may have been a little overdone, but for the most part I enjoyed them and it almost feels like they're a bit of a love letter to the earlier films. It is also undeniable that the casting in this film is exceptional and that having the Mummy move at a quicker pace made him into a more threatening villain. Thank you very much for listening and please join me next time where we shall be concluding The Mummy 1959. Thank you for listening to this introduction to The Mummy Movie Podcast. You can find the show on all podcasting apps or follow the link in the episode description. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.